G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. Well, the uh, 2021 AFL season creeping ever closer. AFLW, of course, kicking off a little over a week from now. The Test Series is over, an outstanding win uh, 2-1 by India over Australia. And uh, there'll be a couple of references to that throughout this show, but um, yeah, just starting to sense uh, the footy might start gearing up now as we approach the end of January. As I say, a very good day. It is afternoon as we record this to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Fine? I'm well, Roco. Well, I'll tell you what, it's the sometimes the least likely uh, sporting Super stories turn out to be such. And as you said, we'll talk about what happened in the cricket throughout this program in dispatches. It remains footyology, but certainly was a magnificent test series. And I guess that, as a sports fan, filled my last couple of days and filled it most satisfactorily. Oh, absolutely gripping test match, I think, uh... You know, if nothing else, uh, regardless of who won and who lost, uh, <laughs> to coin a cliche, uh, Test Cricket was the real winner. Um, I don't know whoever came up with the idea of four-day Test, but uh, it's a definite thumbs down from me after that epic um, finish at the Gabba last evening as we record this on a Wednesday. Uh, we've got plenty to get through. We've got uh, three more team previews today. We're doing Collingwood, Essendon and Fremantle. We've got some life hacks for you. Vinyl video going back to a year in the dim, distant past to talk about the uh, the best of music, movies, TV and football and a good old rant to uh, finish off. But before we do any of that, Finey, a couple of very important organisations we have to pay due credit to. Well, of course, we are wrapped that uh, the doors are open again at our favourite burger place in town. Andrew's Hamburgers, after a little bit of a sabbatical, the boys are back on the grill and more power to them. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. They certainly go from strength to strength. Incredibly, 82 years young. And it's hard to believe, but it is true that here you've got a family-run business that turns out magnificent burgers generation after generation. So... It certainly is a changing world. We know that. But one thing that hasn't changed, magnificent burgers at Andrew's Hamburgers. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And I was half expecting you to burst into the famous Thin Lizzy track, Boys Are Back in Town, uh, when you mentioned that. I've been listening to a bit of Thin Lizzy lately. You know, they've got a, uh, there's an ACDC song called Jailbreak, which we all know. But Thin Lizzy, you've got a, a great song called Jailbreak too. Completely different song, but well worth a listen. But I digress. And who else do we need to thank for their patronage of this podcast? 
West Point Properties, the great Nick Spartels and that company, again, through tough times, has continued to deliver magnificent builds if you're considering a, a new home or a renovation in the inner southeastern suburbs, think Albert Park, Middle Park, South Melbourne, Port Melbourne, etc. then West Point Properties, contact Nick Spartels. Brilliantly done. They will serve you brilliantly, both those organisations. We hope to serve you brilliantly in this podcast. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology Newsfeed. Well, not a, a heap of uh, football news around the traps this week, you've got to say. Um, Sydney Stacks quarantine saga continuing to play out. I see, uh, well, I see the Herald Sun, as we record, have gone with a story about Eddie Maguire talking about uh, conducting the season earlier because of worries about... Um, Coronavirus. Could have sworn I saw that story several months ago. In fact, a couple of times. But there you go. Um, not a lot else to speak of uh, in pure news uh, terms. But we do have our ongoing preview series, our tale of a tape of every AFL club uh, for 2021. Last week we did Adelaide, Brisbane, Carlton. We're doing another three this week. And we're kicking off, yes, you should have worked out by now, we're doing it alphabetically. So we are kicking off with the Magpies. Collingwood Football Club finished sixth on the ladder last year, of course, uh, that memorable uh, finals win in Perth against West Coast. Um, Probably levelled out a bit by a pretty ignominious performance the following week against Geelong, uh, in which they kicked one goal, I think, uh, one goal still in the last quarter, wasn't it? It was pretty shocker. Anyway, uh, their pies finished up, uh, of course, 18-game uh, seasons. They finished up, sorry, 17-game seasons. They finished up with 10 wins, eight losses and a draw uh, in achieving that sixth place on the ladder. Plenty of list changes to the pies out and some big names among them. Adam Trelaw, of course, the biggest. He's off to the Western Bulldogs. Dane Beams is retired. Travis Varco is retired. Tom Langdon has retired. Jaden Stevenson, uh, somewhat surprisingly, off to North Melbourne. Uh, Tom Phillips, ditto, you could argue, off to Hawthorne. Ben Reid has retired. Lyndon Dunn has retired. Atu Bosnavalagi off to North Melbourne along with Jaden Stevenson. Uh, Tim Broomhead, Matt Sharonberg, Rupert Wills and Flynn Appleby all delisted onto the list for the Pies. They did pretty well at the draft table. Got some pretty highly prized picks there. Uh, Oliver Henry from the Geelong Falcons, of course, the younger brother of Cat uh, Jack Henry. Finlay McRae from the Oakley Chargers, younger brother of Jack McRae at the Bulldogs. Reef McInnes from the Oakley Chargers. Caleb Poulter from Woodville West Torrens in South Australia, Liam McMahon from Northern Knights, Bo McCreary from South Adelaide, Jack Ginnivan from the Bendigo Pioneers, and Isaac Chug from Launceston. Um, your thoughts off the top of your scone, Fanny? How do you reckon the Pies are going to go this year? If it wasn't Collingwood, you'd say this is a side that's gone for the rebuild and prepare for two or three years of performances outside the top eight but of course Collingwood are a big organisation and they've talked up their national draft performance 
they've also said that they've uh, calculated and prepared for this and everything that happened in a very tumultuous post-season trade period during which, of course, in quick succession, they lost Adam Trelaw and Stevenson and Phillips and a lot of it seemed to be happening, the left hand not exactly knowing what the right hand was doing. The story coming out of Collingwood is, have a look how well we've done in the draft. Of course, draft success, it can't be established, uh, probably for two or three seasons at least. You'd have to say that aside, we look at the eight and we look at which teams are most vulnerable because there's no going to be teams desperate to forge their way into the top eight. That's the nature of football. And Collingwood seems to be the most vulnerable. And I think that vulnerability will come to fruition. I can't see them making the eight this season, Rowan. The main problem is that uh, alongside the loss of some, you know, very important player in Adam Trelaw, albeit with injury problems, and Stevenson, who did not have a great year. Phillips had some time out of the best 22. They didn't really, weren't able to address their major Achilles heel, which is a forward line that has my check almost as the number one kingpin and the still perplexing Mason Cox. Good occasionally, may I say very occasionally, and confounding or disappointing the rest of the time. So I don't think they've done enough to address their problems and maybe even created some more problems. Yeah, interesting. It's a vulnerable Collingwood for mine. I think they finished somewhere between 12th and 16th. Wow. Jeez, you've marked them down. I'm not, I'm not that gloomy about them. I, I've got a lot of respect for their fighting abilities. I think um, I look back to 2018. I don't think many people thought they were terrific uh, prospects that season coming off what what was it a fourth season in a row missing out in finals and they were within uh, a minute and a half of winning a premiership so um, I think they're capable of, of gelling um, I, that said though there, there are certainly some big question marks for mine I agree with you absolutely about the forward setup probably even more so now that Stevenson is out of the mix you know do they have they do have capable medium-sized goal kickers. I mean, I guess guys like Josh Dacos can fill the, the bill there, though they probably want him to play more midfield time, I'd suspect now. Uh, Dugowie's in the same boat, you know, midfield and, and forward. But, yeah, the key forwards are a worry. Still going to be reliant uh, pretty much on Brody Majacek and, and Mason Cox. Interesting stat on their uh, forward setup. They, I mean, there's no problem the Magpies have getting their hands on the footy. They averaged 27.8 more disposals than their opponents each week last season. That was sec- ranked second on differentials in the competition. They were eighth for total inside 50s. But here's where it all slips up. Um, they were 15th for total scores per inside 50. Now, if you're ranking in the top eight for inside 50 numbers, you should be a lot higher than 15th for scores per inside 50. So the conversion isn't good. Um, they seem to have a lot of players who are pretty injury prone. You know, uh, Levi Greenwood's in that boat. Um, you know, Jeremy Howe, obviously, recent times. Um, they had other players with interrupted seasons, you know, Steel Sidebottom. Uh, he only played, what, I think 10 of, uh, or did he miss 10? He, he certainly missed a fair chunk of the season. Is he what he was only a couple of years ago? Probably needs a big season. Scott Pendlebury, no doubt the lifeblood of that midfield. But, you know, geez, he's getting on. I think he's 33 now. Um, so the midfield is 
we, we don't tend to have questioned their midfield much over the years, but I think now those questions might be asked. With Pendlebury getting on, side bottom coming off a, a pretty subdued year, uh, no Trelaw, no Phillips. They're really uh, and and uh, the, the depth is really going to have to step up. And I think Dacos, um, both Browns, Tyler and Callum are, are capable of filling that breach. But uh, it's hard to see them sort of attaining the same status as a midfield group that they held even a couple of seasons ago. So, yeah, big question marks. I think they're very capable of sneaking into the bottom of the eight, but uh, I, I couldn't, in all honesty, have them a lot higher at this stage. So I'm going for just inside the eight or just outside. You're going for bottom four, which is a reasonably big call on your part. Not uh, quite, but not quite. 12th to 16th. There is one really interesting look, Rowan. Yeah. This year marks the first year of a seven-year contract for Brody Grundy. Now, he did not have a good 2020. No, he didn't. No, good. Very call. interesting to see how he resaddles up this season. I'm not saying I expect him to have a good year. Don't get me wrong, but mm. seven years is a long contract. Let's just see how he reloads the gun for season 2021. Yeah, and the other thing to remember there too is even when he was having a good year in the previous couple of years, you know that. They didn't always capitalise on his hit-out dominance, which is interesting. So, um, yeah, they absolutely need him to uh, to bounce back pretty hard from a relatively disappointing year. All right, that's enough on the pies. Can't put it off any longer. I think it's time to talk about my bombers finding. I think the expectations on them in 2021 are going to be pretty subdued at best, and that is because of a major departure of talent. Uh, first of all, let's look at their record last year, and it was miserable, to say the least. One, uh, what was it, four out of their first five games and only managed to win another two of the last dozen, ending up with six wins, ten losses, and a draw for a lowly 13th. The outs are pretty massive. Joe Danaher has gone to Brisbane. Adam Saad has gone to Carlton. Aratio Fantasia has gone to Port Adelaide. Connor McKenna has retired and gone back to Ireland. Tom Bell Chambers, our mate from the Albert Park Deli, has retired. <laughs> Ross McQuillan has also gone back to Ireland and retired. Sean McKernan delisted. He's off to St Kilda. Jacob Towson was delisted. He is now at Gold Coast. And Mitch Hibbard, Kobe Much, Josh Begley, Noah Gown and Henry Crawford all delisted. They did pretty well at the draft table, no doubt about that, as they should have with three top 10 picks. Uh, they were used on Nick Cox, who apparently is braining them in pre-season work. Very tall, but very athletic. Uh, son of former Fitzroy Melbourne player, Daryl Cox. Archie Perkins, a little live eye he is from Sandringham Dragons. Loads of expectations about him. And Zach Reed from Gippsland Power. A couple of other uh, academy selections, um, guys who uh, the Bombers have trained up and were able to pick up with later picks. Josh Eyre from Calder Cannons and his Calder Cannons teammate, Cody Brand. And in off the trade table, two-metre Peter Wright from Gold Coast. Essendon pinning a lot of faith in him being able to take over the Joe Danaher role. Jai Caldwell from GWS, a midfielder, of course, probably hasn't had sufficient game time at the Giants. 
And Nick Hind, who was a former Essendon Reserves player, went to your Saints, Finey, and uh, I thought acquitted himself reasonably well. But now back with the Bombers. Um, like I said, I don't think people will be expecting too much in this first year under the sole tutelage of Ben Rutten. How do you see it working out for them? Just on Nick Hind, that is a really clever pickup by Essendon because St Kilda had no room for Nick Hind off the half-back line, played him in the forward line. That's not his go. He's a running half-back. And Essendon, of course, had done so well with Adam Saad in that position, having lost Adam Saad and the Irish boys. Oh, geez, oh, his name. McKenna. Uh, McKenna, sorry. They, they've got a vacancy there. You'll be wrapped with Nick Hyde. Very fast, takes the game on. Yeah, well, it's, it's I just qualified good decision in that uh, a lot of very informed people at Essendon thought he should have been picked up first time around. So yeah, better late yeah, than never. Yeah, and also he's from Clunes. Uh, Bob Davis territory, isn't it? Correct. So if you want somebody, if you want a flyer, go to Clunes. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> He'll be a good pickup. Um, It'll be really interesting to see how Essendon reunify under Ben Rutten. There was a lot of talk about whether Ben Rutten and the handover with John Worsfold was done correctly. Some of it, I think, a little bit unfair. Ben Rutten writes his own story starting this year. And it's not a terrible position for Ben to start at. That is a club that had a disappointing 2020. So I think we're looking for what, uh, what, what are referred to as green shoots? I, don't, I doubt Essendon internally would be expecting to make the finals. But what they would be hoping for is, as you said, with a good hand in the draft, showing, seeing something from the likes of Cox and Perkins and rebuilding a side that needs rebuilding pretty much across the ground. That forward line does need rejigging. The midfield, hopefully to be bolstered well by Jai Caldwell. He's got some raps about him. Certainly hasn't played a lot of football, but the word is that he can certainly play. And... If the expectations aren't too high, I don't think there'd be too much disappointment in Essendon's performance. You've got to realise this. No Danaher, no Fantasia. They've barely played the last two years anyhow. So we're not talking about integral parts of the team in recent times. Rebuild the side. I think Essendon will finish in the bottom four, but that doesn't necessarily mean it'll be a wasted season or a disappointing season if young players get their start in league football. Yep, fair enough. Uh, just quickly on my part, uh, look, a couple of positives. Um, obviously, the biggest one was Jordan Ridley. What an incredible season he had coming from a, a guy that had played single-digit games in a couple of years to a best and fairest win. Uh, boy, that was an emergence. Uh, so, obviously, plenty expected of him to continue that uh, great form he showed as an intercept-marking defender last year. I think uh, last year we saw a much more mature Kyle Langford. I know I'm a fan, but uh, I think he really acquitted himself well. He can now become an established part of that midfield with a bit more opportunity to be in there full-time and also as a um, almost a third tall forward. He is very, very handy near goals. So that's a plus. I think Andrew McGrath continues to just incrementally improve his game and become a, a seriously good AFL player. Zach Merritt um, had a pretty good year in a, a struggling team. 
Um, I think there's potential for a lot more of that midfield. Heppel, hopefully fit and returning. They'd like to get more out of someone like Zaharakis in his twilight years. But there's still plenty of ifs there, and that's what worries me about the midfield. You're quite right about the forward line. Um, you know, if it is going to perform, it's going to be more a surprise than an expectation, I think. I think one of the biggest issues they have to overcome, though, is what was clearly a pretty fractured um, playing culture. You know, you had players uh, sort of at loggerheads with other players, certainly with the football department and the administration at times. A lot of confusion about the sort of footy they wanted to play. Now, I think it's pretty obvious Ben Rutten's made that quite clear now and uh, the the phrase blue-collar team keeps getting thrown around. So that's what they want to be. Do they have the personnel to play that brand of footy? I'm not so convinced, but, you know, he's got now, I guess, a bit of a a blank canvas. I think their defence is becoming a worry quickly as well with the ageing of uh, Michael Hurley and Cale Hooker. That hopefully get Patrick Ambrose back this year. He's a very important part of that defensive equation. He was badly missed last year. And hopefully uh, James Stewart, whose second half last year was pretty impressive, can continue that form and become an established part of a key forward tandem with Peter Wright. Of course, one other uh, bright light for the Bombers last year and uh, big hopes for his 2021 young ruckman, uh, Sam Draper, our other mate from the Albert Park Deli, who unfortunately I failed to recognise last week. I'm sure that'll change, certainly with the rude haircut that he's uh, sporting. Um, yeah, so uh, Bombers, I've got them, oh, in fact, I haven't even really dwelt on it yet, but I'd have to say somewhere from 13th to 18th. Where have you got them? Bottom four. Okay. Oh, I don't think too many people argue with that. All right. Our final club for review this week is Fremantle. They had, for a side that missed out in the eight. Uh, I think people were pretty positive about the Dockers by the end of last year. Uh, Justin Longmuir in his first season as coach, I think he certainly won people over with the sort of game style he adopted there and how he handled his troops. The Dockers uh, finishing the season with seven wins and 10 losses for a position of 12th. Um, Some significant offs on the Dockers list. Jesse Hogan, a uh, bit of a problem child for Freo. He was. He's off to GWS. And uh, speaking of problem children, Cam McCarthy, he's been delisted. Brandon Matera delisted. Jason Carter delisted. Dylan O'Reilly delisted. Isaiah Butters delisted. See, Zach's brother? Not everyone knows him. Uh, <laughs> Hugh Dixon delisted. Tom North delisted. And Jarvis Peanut delisted. Coming on to the list. Um, some highly rated young talent, Heath Chapman from West Perth, Nathan O'Driscoll from Perth, Brandon Walker from East Fremantle, Joel Weston from Claremont, and Josh Treacy from Bendigo Pioneers. So that's interesting in itself with the exception of one player going for homegrown talent. And why wouldn't you? It's one less problem you have to worry about, the go-home factor. But I think if you're looking at a team that could improve significantly this year, I would certainly have Freo as one of those candidates. Finey, what say you? I agree. I, if you just mentioned that Essendon are looking to become a, a blue-collar team and obviously hard-working. 
and build up from there, I think they need to look no further really than Fremantle of 2020 and what Longmuir achieved in his first season with the club. Look, the ideal scenario for Fremantle is that their forward line that last year became quite, you know, quite a workable and dangerous unit continues to develop. But I think a lot relies on the fitness and availability of Tabiner, who's a good footballer, takes a good mark, covers a lot of ground. Mobile forward with good hands like that is hard to match up against. We know how brilliant Walters is at the drop of the ball. And also the ability to run Fife into the forward line at the right time it makes that a particularly dangerous proposition. You throw Rory Lobb down there, and sometimes they're very hard to match up against. <coughs> I agree. I think that they've got a, a side that has a back line that is not necessarily heralded, but very effective. And they've got a... a players to come back from injury as well that can improve that scenario. Yeah, well, Joel, Joel Hamling, Alex Absolutely. Pierce. That's right. So you add that to Ryan, who had a fantastic season. You've got a, a, no, a no frills, but highly effective back line, a midfield that worked hard and young players that came to the fourth through the season. No, I, I think that they can improve on their 12th place in this year. I think they can threaten the ace. I don't know whether they'll make it. I've actually got the ninth to 12th, but given that they finished 12th last year, that gives them a bit of scope for improvement. Yeah, I would have thought 10 wins is not unreasonable in a 22-game season. No, I agree. I think they could become a more exciting side this year too. Now, when Longmuir took over, he talked about them being playing with a bit more positivity and a bit more dare. We didn't necessarily see that, but I think having laid those sort of defensive foundations uh, and given the amount of young talent we're getting through and uh, they've got coming through, sorry, and it's only when you sort of list it, I think, particularly in the eastern states, happy to put my hand up there and saying they're not certainly prominent on the radar of a lot of Victorian football watchers. When you actually write it down and go through it, boy, they've got some good prospects coming through. Now, Midfield, for starters, you've got the rising star winner in Caleb Sarong. Adam Chera and Andrew Brayshaw, both now with three seasons under their belts. They could really quickly jump up, I reckon, and become a real great core of a, a midfield for the next, you know, seven to ten years. But in addition to that, uh, and incidentally, another uh, addition to that defence who, who missed out for much of last year, Griffin Logue. So... You know, they've got some serious defensive capabilities to come back and a defence that was good enough to finish um, fifth for fewest points conceded. They only conceded 54 points per game last year. So that's already pretty much locked down as a, a, a fully functioning unit. Um, but in terms of that young talent, besides those midfielders I mentioned, you've got Hayden Young, very impressive last year until he got injured. Liam Henry, ditto. Sam Sturt, Mitch Crowden. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys who I think could develop really quickly and most of them have already played a bit of footy. So another reason why they could be potentially a team that really jumps up significantly up the ladder. Uh, enough for me to tip them as a finalist. Probably not at this stage because there's just so many competitors for those final spots. Um, but it wouldn't shock me at all if the Dockers were to make it. So I think uh, fair to say we're both 
reasonably bullish about Frio in 2021. All right, there's our three club previews for this week. Uh, time to kick back a bit, Fanny, and uh, muse on matters of life. Life Hacks, building a better world. All right, let's get this segment underway. I've kept this one up my sleeve, Finey, because when we recorded last week, I was in a position to talk about this, but there was still one important element that I hadn't seen, and I wanted to see that so I could comment on the whole kit caboodle. But now I can, and it is my pleasure to say that 10 years late, like I've done with a lot of other good things, I finally watched from start to finish Breaking Bad. And what an epic masterpiece of television that show is. Absolutely gripping. Um, It sucked me in straight away. Could not stop watching it. Uh, David, my son, who uh, stayed with me pretty much permanently these days, uh, he sat down and watched it for a second time and got sucked in again. Um, and uh, when you ask, what am I talking about, the bit at the end, I felt like I couldn't do it justice unless I watched the Breaking Bad movie called El Camino, which only came out a couple of years ago, a good six years after the series finished. But really good movie. I really enjoyed that as well. Um, what can I say about it? Uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with the story, chemistry teacher, diagnosed with cancer, uh, decides to metaphorically go out with a bang and become a methamphetamine cook. Um, and uh, fair to say he uh, he embraces the, that job with conviction to the point where um, he undergoes a, f- a fair metamorphosis of character, old uh, Walter White. Uh, boy, he's a pretty different person at the end than he is at the start. And his accomplice in all this is a young former student of his, Jesse Pinkman. Uh, Walter White, by the way, brilliantly played by Brian Cranston. And Jesse Pinkman, I thought, brilliantly played by Aaron Paul. Um, everything about this show I love. The acting, the storylines, the way it was shot, um, you know, the the building of dramatic tension. You know, I've, des- I've just forgotten the name of the director. It's Vince... Um, it'll come to me. I'll look it up. Uh, but outstanding, uh, outstanding effort from him. Um, and not just those two either. The uh, you know the other um, characters in it, uh, Gus Fring, you know the evil genius of Gus Fring, uh, Mike, the standover man, uh, Skyler. Uh, a lot of people weren't fans of Skyler, Walt's wife, but I was. I thought Skyler could hold her head high at the end of this. Um, but, geez, it's a great show. Uh, I think 62 episodes in total or thereabouts and the movie. Uh, Vince Gilligan, thank you very much, Damon. Uh, outstanding work from Vince Gilligan. Um, and the movie's great. So if you've seen the series but not the movie, make sure you do because uh, uh, I guess it ties up some loose ends. It's basically focused on Jesse um, and what happens to him. But, um I would say uh, a lot of people think it's the greatest TV show of all time. Personally, I'd have it number two, but only fractionally behind The Wire, which is my favourite show of all time. Absolutely outstanding. Uh, Often when people wrap something up, you end up being disappointed, but couldn't be further from the truth. I'm so glad I finally got around to watching it, finally. 
It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I, I just wondered the difference between watching it, consuming it binge style, as you would have consumed it, as uh, back in the day I had to sort of wait weekly and then at the end of a particular season just have to hang out for another year. But either way, it's brilliant. And you know what's great? That it's set in New Mexico. Yeah. That's very different to so much TV that we've seen from America. And those vast, stark, dry scenes in the desert sort of it's, yeah, it's, yeah. you know drugs it was, and it was all about drugs and cactus wasn't it yeah and um a good uh, as the u.s election was good for my american geography knowledge um so was that show i mean there's one scene where he goes and stands on is it called the four corners uh, where yeah. four states intersect and uh david and i immediately went and looked it up what was it arizona new mexico colorado and Texas? Texas, might have been, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, yeah, wow, what a show. Uh, yeah, like, good point. I mean, it, it, it ran over five years, was it? I think started 2008, finished 2013, and then the movie actually didn't come out until 2019. So it's been a drawn-out exercise. Um, and with the internet around, it would have been hard to avoid spoilers and whatnot. I went to so... I, in fact, I can confess now, Friday, when we had lunch last week, um, <laughs> I hope you don't get pissed off with this. I said to Damon, have you watched Breaking Bad? And he said, yeah. And I said, don't tell me anything. Don't tell me anything. And then I asked if you'd seen it. And um, he was pretty sure you had. And uh, I, I guarantee there's no slur on you, but I just feared that in your excitement, you would yeah. give away some essential part of the plot. So I decided not to tell you. I decided not to tweet anything about it because some dickhead had spoiled it for me. I told, it was like I'd you know, just signed a million-dollar contract with the LA Dodgers or something. I didn't tell anyone about it except my youngest son. But now I can tell the world I've seen one of the great TV shows. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, what's your first life hack? By the way, very judicious, not saying that you were watching it because you know me, I can't contain myself. I would have been... Heisenborging my way through a few few storylines there, so you did well. I told you, Damon. I told you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm starting off with the tennis. I don't want to call it a fiasco, but I think it's a fiasco. Look, we are very fortunate to live in Australia in that we're a giant island and this terrible COVID coronavirus plague that is in parts of the world bringing nations to a, a standstill and taking lives horribly we have for the most part and we've had our tragic losses been able to avoid that especially with the emergence of two new virulent strains out of England and South Africa I just don't think it makes sense opening the doors to tennis players coaches media from around the world I, I know it's, cons, ultra, it's ultra conservatism, but especially here in Melbourne, and maybe because I live within a well-placed lob from where the tennis is going to be played, I just feel that we've gone through so much here in Melbourne and we're on top of things. We've had a, a little hiccup with the Sydney beaches, the Northern beaches outbreak, but that seems to be under control. Nobody in Melbourne, I think, has the stomach for another 
major series of lockdowns, and we can avoid that if we avoid a major influx from overseas that is basically hard to control. And young tennis players are hard to control. I, I think it's. I think we should have read the tea leaves and either postponed it or called off this Australian Open. I know it's a major financial decision and would be a major financial blow to not only Tennis Australia, but to Tourism Victoria. I think it would have been the right decision. Yeah, I, I probably tend to agree, to be honest. I, I haven't sort of been forced to come down on either side of the fence. I see the sort of economic and symbolic imperative to go on with it, but... Like you say, we've worked so hard to sort of overcome what was a dire situation. I mean, the unfortunate thing is the role that politics plays in all these things now. And to that end, uh, I'm returning your serve on the tennis. My second life hack is also sort of touching on the tennis, but more to the point on a certain politician. All right, I'll tell you the story. So sitting there on Sunday night, Minding my own business, well, on Twitter, minding my own business. And I see a, um, a whole lot of uh, uh, angst and uh, the name of a certain member for Q, Tim Smith, uh, trending on Twitter again. Now, I can't see what Tim Smith uh, says on Twitter because like about half of Twitter, I've been blocked by him, um, which uh, is no shame at all, to be honest. But... What happened was uh, Stan Warinka uh, had lobbed in town, was in hotel quarantine, took a selfie of himself sitting there at the table having a coffee and, I don't know, reading something, and he tweeted, first rule of quarantine, social distancing, and he pointed out that he was there on his own, no one else around, no entourage or anything, and he added the hashtags, happy to be here and grateful. And uh, I think most people saw that and went, oh, good on you, Stan. You know, you're a nice bloke. You're not an entitled prat who's whinging about the conditions like uh, certain Australian tennis players. Hello, Bernard Tommy. Um, and it was a pretty good effort. Uh, five seconds later, Tim Smith, ever the political opportunist, has seized on that tweet, retweeted it, quote tweeted it, as you do, and written on top, Wow. So while Victorians interstate are stuck there and unable to get back home, this flog of a tennis player is living it up at our expense, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it was just like, okay, you can have a view on whether this should be going ahead. You can have a view on whether the government's doing the right thing, whether they're uh, acquiescing too much to the desires of tennis players. But if there was one bloke on the circuit who shouldn't have been picked on for his attitude, it was Stan Warinka. Um, I could not believe it. Now, Tim Smith, I know he wants his name in, in lights and he thinks he's sort of the Donald Trump of Victorian politics. Well, he is in, to one extent, Finey, which is he's an absolute gibbering idiot. Uh, I tweeted something back about th this guy's stupidity just defies belief. Like, is the Victorian Liberal Party trying to drive its vote down to zero? I mean, even staunch Liberal voters that I know just shake their heads about him and going, you know, this guy really cannot be a candidate to lead the state Liberal Party. Surely they will not get a single vote if that's the case. He's a moron. Now, Tim, I know you won't be listening to this. You're a moron. Anyway, um, Stan Warinka promptly replied to my tweet with a facepalm emoji 
and uh, a shrug of the shoulders saying, what did I do? And uh, anyway, that was good because a lot of people then reply to him and say, oh, yeah, apologies to Tim Smith, mate. Good luck in the open. Uh, but there you go. Like uh, people politicising health crises are well and truly over that sort of crap. All right, Fanny, your second. So I am going to talk briefly about the cricket because it was magnificent and, you know, doff my hat to the Indian cricket team who who could have imagined after all out 36 losing the first test, Virat Kohli going back home one, but I'll leave that. I think you'll expand on that later. I just want to comment on how great test cricket is, but how we've seen test cricket enhanced by great 2020 cricket because the emergence of Washington Sundar, the ability of Pant to play all around the wicket to win the fourth test is testimony to the strongest and obviously therefore best IPL competition, uh, 2020 competition, the IPL. And being a big fan of the IPL, I just knew that as these new players were coming in, Thakur, Sundar, Washington Sundar, etc., they can play. Don't worry about that. Australia may have, I don't know whether there was complacency. Certainly when you think that Bumrah, uh, Mohamed Saini and, you, you know, uh, the other bowler, Yuvraj, not bowling, you'd think that Australia are, are well and truly on the way to a comfortable test series win. But a big thumbs up for what IPL has done for test cricket. Test cricket remains king, but is even better for the creativity, innovation and run scoring ability and also the bowling depth that it's given to a team like India. So better for, better for it. Don't knock 2020, just marvel at how good cricket can be at test level when those skills are applied. Yep, yep, no, absolutely. The ability to chase down a fourth innings total too when, you know, historically you would have thought, oh, they won't have a crack at that, you know. And uh, even, you know, had Punt gone out, things might have started looking dicey, but they, they held their nerve. Jeez, uh, it was a gutsy, gutsy effort. And I will expand on that a little bit later, but hats off to India for that fantastic win. All right, my last one. Um, sorry, folks, just a, 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 another slight political rant here. Uh, it's sort of, Actually, it's a rant about social media as well. I've said this for a long time now, but absolutely reaffirmed to me. Facebook is a sewer. A lot of people say Twitter is too. I don't agree. I beg to differ. I think there's a lot more intelligent debate that goes on on Twitter. I think Twitter is an excellent source for sharing links to various news stories that people then discuss, largely in a, um, you know, it's a short and sharp medium for sure. But, uh, geez, I see some more intelligent discussion on Twitter than I do on Facebook. What's that based on in a Facebook sense? Well, uh, everything that goes up on the Footyology website is posted on my Twitter account and my professional Facebook page. As we all know or should know by now, uh, the Footyology website is not just a football website. We talk about uh, TV, music, movies, um, social commentary and a bit of politics as well, particularly at the moment with the US election having gone on and the situation pretty volatile. 
So I've run a couple of political pieces lately. They've both gone up on uh, Facebook and been pretty much instantaneously hijacked by some of the, uh, I've got to say, some of the most right-wing political views I've ever seen in this country. People who would not look out of place wearing a MAGA hat and storming the Capitol a couple of weeks back. That has been the tone of a lot of the comments on these Facebook posts. There's been some celebrity posts as well, none other than five-time Hawthorne Premiership player Dermot Brereton is these days uh, pursuing another role as a commentator on international relations. And Derm's been weighing in as well, which uh, I don't mind at all because everyone likes a bit of a tater tate with Derm. So that's been going on as well. Uh, look, it can be entertaining, but, uh, geez, a lot of it just makes me think, uh, wow, we, we, we like to think Donald Trump couldn't happen here. You know what? I'm not so convinced. And I'm pretty convinced that Sky News and those cynical sort of media organisations that have been exploiting the Trump era for commercial gain have had a fair bit to do with that. So uh, it worries me. It does worry me. Uh, but I can say this absolutely definitively. If I didn't have to use Facebook for professional purposes, I would not touch it with a barge pole. It is toxic. All right, your last one, Fanny. Good segue, social media, because that's what I'm on about. By the way, I've never been on Facebook and I don't intend to start. What the hell, and I've had it explained to me, what the hell is TikTok? Why does it exist and why is it popular? I just can't, I just don't get it. You know, I, I, what captivates young people and makes for a successful TikTok, I don't even know, if, you know, five seconds of doing something, being silly, dancing. I'm just not quite sure what purpose it's, it serves, why people want to be part of TikTok and who likes it. But it seems as though a lot of people like it. And it's one of those things where adults and people more our age are too scared to say that it's rubbish or they don't have any interest in it because it consumes the minds of so many millions of people that they, if they don't embrace it, they certainly don't reject it. Well, I reject it. I reckon it's insane. I reckon it's the sort of thing that you would have done to keep your pet cockatoo or lorikeet amused 10 years ago, and now you're doing it now. Human beings are seemingly amused by it. I, don't, I just don't get it. And I don't, uh, want it. And I don't like it. Yeah, I, I don't get it. Um, and actually... Whilst I'm on Instagram, I don't really get Instagram either. Instagram is incredibly popular, um, but it's just, it's all sort of pictures and, and silly videos and people taking pictures and adding all these effects and stuff to them. And then a whole lot of people sort of like their posts. There's hardly even any dialogue. You know, I don't see many Instagram posts with a whole lot of commentary and comments underneath them. And, I sort of go, I don't know. I, I'm not one of those people that thinks of taking a picture every five seconds. And uh, I'm someone who likes engaging in a written dialogue. So if, if you are one of those people, I, I wouldn't recommend Instagram. But uh, that's where all the influences are now, obviously, because you can do some pretty unsubtle product placement with it, probably easier than Twitter. But uh, anyway, if Twitter is the 
I don't know. I think I think Instagram is the uh, and TikTok are probably the young people's social media platform. I think Facebook's a bit of an old farts social media platform, and Twitter. Well, I don't know. I'd like to think it's the sensible media platform. Uh, Robert, anyway, yes, folks. Me TikTok and Instagram just remind me of a a shiny mirror that you put in a cockatoo's cage. You know, it's like, oh, look at that. Oh, that's pretty. What is it? I don't know. And then look at it again in five minutes and, oh, yeah, that's pretty, but it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, we'll put it this way. If you're a narcissist, it's certainly your social media platform. So uh, I expect to see Donald Trump bob up there pretty shortly. Now he's been banned from, oh, hang on, he, he, I don't think he can now. He's been banned by Facebook as well, and they own Instagram. Anyway, uh, enough life hacks for this week. Time now to uh, jump in our time machine, take a trip back and look at our favourite music, movies, TV and footy memories from a year gone by. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Rightio, I keep saying we're running out of years in this segment, but there's still a handful of goodies left. Uh, we've delved back into the not-too-distant future for this one, 21st century again. We are talking about 2004, um, I have to say, and otherwise pretty miserable year in my life for a few reasons, but there was some good music, movies, TV, and some pretty decent footy too. Uh, I'm going to kick us off with music, finally. My music selection, it's not going to be uh, one that uh, many people will necessarily know. But I uh, couldn't find too much that um, stirred my musical juices that year. One album that was an honourable exception, though, was from an American band from North Carolina, as a matter of fact, Wilmington, North Carolina. They are called He Is Legend. And uh, very interesting band. They've had a, a number of different lineups, but uh, could probably be classified as it's metalcore. Um, but with uh, the guitars certainly have a, a tinge of Southern American rock about them. So what does that mean? Uh, hard to, I find it hard to articulate, to be honest, but some really interesting guitar sounds. Um, uh, no, I can't compare them to anyone else. The vocals are particularly interesting. Lead vocalist is a guy called Shyla Croom. He has one of the most amazing voices I've ever heard in my life because he is capable of singing really sweetly and melodically and does quite often, but also some of the most blood-curdling screamo-type stuff you've ever heard in your life. And he encompasses both styles often in the one song. Um, they're a really interesting band. Their debut album came out in 2004. It is called I Am Hollywood. I think it did reasonably well commercially, but um, I got onto it a few years later but really like this band. So Shyla Croon, the lead vocalist, Adam uh, Tambuz, I think, lead guitar, Maddie Williams on bass, uh, Steve Bash on drums, and Mackenzie Bell, the rhythm guitarist. It's a really good album. There's some quite uh, commercial-sounding uh, rock stuff on it. There's some pretty, you know, left-field screamo-type stuff on it as well. Uh, some really interesting arrangements. There's some songs that sort of go in various different directions throughout the course of a song. So, look, put it this way. If you like your 
you like your rock music nice and uncomplicated, this probably isn't a record for you and they aren't a band for you. But if that does appeal, uh, certainly worth checking out. Um, the band, He Is Legend, and the album, I Am Hollywood. What do you got for us? Well, if you do like your rock music uncomplicated, in 2004, this was a bit of a throwback because by 2004, the idea of seeing a, a band take stage with a drummer and a couple of guitarists and a lead singer was almost um, in, the, in the nostalgia section of music. But Franz Ferdinand certainly made their mark. They're a Scottish band, of course, taking their name from Archduke Ferdinand, whose assassination precipitated World War I. Must have a political bent to them. And in 2004, they released their self-titled album that really sort of garnered them worldwide attention, Franz Ferdinand. Number of singles off the album, most noticeably Take Me Out. That's probably the song most people recognise. There was also Darts of Pleasure, Michael, Dark of the Matinee. Um, I personally like a couple of other tracks on the album. There's Jacqueline, which is the opening track, and Tell Her Tonight. And it's actually an album that I really enjoyed and a band that I really enjoyed until I saw them live at the big day out. And I've got to say, I downgraded them a bit because I felt that they probably were more of a studio band than a live band from what I saw. And I was really expecting a great live band but they sounded a bit sort of tinny and crappy to me live. Anyhow, maybe they had a bad afternoon. But certainly the album Franz Ferdinand, by Franz Ferdinand, for, for fans of bands who play rock music, was a welcome um, rarity in 2004. Right now it would be, I think, those sort of bands are on the extinct list. But even in 2004, it was a throwback that I think a lot of people enjoyed. Yeah, well, what, was it Take Me Out or Take You Out? Take Me Out. Take Me Out. Yeah, no, I, I really liked that. Very catchy. I remember yeah, I just had a nasty little flashback there of dancing manically on the dance floor of some pub in Dublin on the International Rules Tour of 2004 to, uh, to that song. Uh, and I had had a few at that stage. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, good choice. I'm impressed. All right, let's go to movies now. I'm afraid I've probably cut your lunch here, Finey. I think you were a bit surprised to hear me go with this one, but I I have been a huge fan of this film from the moment I saw it, and I'm pretty sure I saw it the year it came out too. Um, a very, very well-known, I'd say this is one of the best-known foreign language films of, of all time for various reasons, uh, probably stupidly um, because it has spawned an incredible number of internet memes. What am I talking about? Oh, yes, I'm talking about Downfall, the uh, brilliant, um, uh, uh, what's the word, Uh, uh, chronicle, I guess, of the final days of Adolf Adolf Hitler in his bunker in Berlin. Uh, Yes, we've all seen those Hitler videos. If you've only seen those Hitler videos and haven't seen the film, for God's sake, do yourself a favour. It is a brilliant film um, directed by Oliver Hirschberger. uh, No, sorry, Hirsch Beagle, I think. Sorry, sorry, apologies, Oliver. But one of the great acting performances of all time from the Swiss veteran actor Bruno Gantz, who unfortunately passed away I think a couple of years ago now, 
But uh, boy, you know, in terms of character acting, there haven't been many better portrayals of any famous historical figures than his portrayal of Adolf Hitler. He looked like him. He sounded like him. The mannerisms. Um, God, it was so believable. And I did. I know this is one of your top 50 films, Fanny. I think you had it number 35. I did reread your review and you made that point yourself that you've only got to watch it for about five minutes to think, wow, that really is Adolf Hitler. It's a story told through the eyes of his um, personal secretary, a lady called Trudy Jung, I think. Um, and she's brilliantly played too by Alexandra Maria Lara, um, who else features prominently? Well, uh, Joseph Goebbels, of course, played by Ulrich Mathers. Uh, Goebbels' wife, Magda, played by Corinna Harfush. And Eva Braun, uh, of course, the Hitler love interest, played by Julianne Kohler. Um, it is, uh, what could I say about this film? It is brilliant in detail. Um, it, it focuses on as everything's crumbling around them and everyone but Hitler seems to realise the game is up. He's desperately trying to engineer the saving of Berlin and calls various um, uh, armed forces to his aid and finds most of them are ignoring his orders or have been wiped out or escaped uh, or, or whatever. But uh, it's all falling apart and he is probably the last of the believers in the Third Reich. And uh, you see, of course, the famous uh, scene where he loses his you-know-what, which has been turned into those memes. Uh, brilliant to watch that properly, uh, not for comic value, because uh, that is just brilliant in its, in its drama. It's a hard film to watch. It's claustrophobic, of course, in the bunker. It's... Um, uh, Grizzly, you know, there's scenes of people suiciding. That That's one that stayed with me. Uh, of course, you know, for those that aren't familiar with the history, uh, the Goebbels poisoned their six children in the bunker before suiciding themselves. Uh, it's pretty dark subject matter, but uh, brilliant, brilliant film. And uh, I guess, and this is significant, very, very well received in Germany, which had always been a bit touchy about this subject for obvious reasons, but uh, uh, I think they, well, you wouldn't say they lapped it up, but they appreciated what a brilliant uh, biography it was too of uh, the crazed dictator Adolf Hitler. Downfall, 2004, my film. Brilliant film, isn't it? Der Untergang in German. It's, it's sort of a mark of the film, but that is... Many people, including my own, now historical reference to that important historical moment. So, yeah, well done. Terrible year for movies, Rowan. Terrible. Just, you know, you did well with Downfall, but there's not a lot else. Now, I'll just uh, one which uh, I, I enjoyed was uh, Garden State. Um, oh, quirky. Uh, it was quirky. Uh, the other one, and actually, I, I love this film, but I thought Downfall was more important, uh, Team America from our friends at South oh, yeah. Park. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Okay. Anyway, what have you gone with? Look, I've gone for a movie that I I sort of enjoyed, but it's not a brilliant movie. Nevertheless, it made a bit of, a, it made a bit of an impression, and that is Million Dollar Baby. And it tells the story of a female boxer, Maggie Fitzgerald, played by Hilary Swank, who 
comes under the tutelage of a, a gnarly old coach, Frankie Dunn, played by Clint Eastwood. And he's sort of um, corner man is Eddie Dupree, Morgan Freeman. So the acting, the acting chops are there, no doubt about it. Look, I'm not going to give away the plot in case people haven't seen it, but it has a look at the world of women's boxing. And I've got to say that women's boxing has come a long way since 2004. And as we sit here today, there, there are some great female boxers and, and women's boxing rightfully holds uh, an important place on the international boxing scene. But maybe this is a look at the early days of boxing and, and it, it's not a bad movie. I'm not going to go into huge detail as I don't want to give away the plot, but it does at its best show sort of the, the tough, gritty life of the boxing gym and your, your gnarly old trainer and an up-and-comer. So it's another boxing movie. As I say, not a year of great movies for me, but well-acted and it does get you in. Million Dollar Baby. Yeah, I quite enjoyed that. Quite enjoyed that. All right, let's move on to TV. I struggle with TV a bit, to be honest, but uh, one show I did enjoy in 2004 and it was a spin-off, no less. Uh, not often a spin-off ends up being uh, something worth watching, but a spin-off of another of those lawyer shows, The Practice, was Boston Legal. And uh, I found this one uh, a bit different. It was quirky. And, yes, I had the weekly look at a couple of interesting court cases, but it managed to mix a bit of humour and pathos with the courtroom drama-type stuff. And uh, really a vehicle for uh, two actors in particular. We could say three actors. Uh, Candace, um, I've just forgotten her name. Candace Bergen, that's her name. Candace Bergen playing Shirley Schmidt. Um, and the two male leads, uh, William Shatner, uh, an absolutely brilliant portrayal of the slightly mad uh, eccentric lawyer Denny Crane and James Spader playing his uh, good mate and sidekick and I guess sparring partner in a lot of ways um, Alan Shaw and uh, they are the two men that really hold this show up uh, I think John Larroquette came into it a little bit later of course uh, I loved John Larroquette in Night Court back in the day and he popped up in Boston Legal but yeah, look, there's not a lot to explain about it. Of course, another of these uh, genre of shows created by David E. Kelly has to get that E in there. Um, that's how you remember him. But uh, this was, of that genre, this was certainly one of my favourites because it was uh, just a little bit different to the large catalogue of similar sorts of shows and a couple of great actors there in James Spader and William Shatner going hammer and tongs in a variety of weird and wonderful legal situations. So Boston Legal, my choice from 2004. And your choice is? Entourage. And I don't know, did you ever get into Entourage, Robin? I think I only ever watched one episode, but I know people raved about it. So, um, yeah, I'm prepared to uh, I'll be persuaded by your review. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to persuade you. It was sort of something just as the girls would get together back in the day to watch Sex in the City, some of the boys used to love a night watching Entourage, the adventures of Vincent Chase. He was the star with his um, childhood mates, Eric Murphy, 
Vonny Drama and Turtle. Vincent Chase played by Adrian Gronier. Eric Murphy by Kevin Connolly. Kevin Dillon played Johnny Drama. Now, Johnny Drama was Vincent Chase's brother, which is interesting because Kevin Dillon is sort of Matt Dillon's brother. So there was a bit of a parallel there. And Turtle played by Jerry Ferrara. All of them coming under the, uh, the spell of the great manager, Ari Gold, played by Jeremy Piven. And it was basically excesses of the lads going to Hollywood, wonderful parties, meeting famous stars, um, women to the left of them, women to the right of them. It was pretty sort of, uh, was it misogynistic? Look, I don't know whether it had cut, you know, I don't know whether it had make it nowadays. We probably moved on a bit from that, but still it was the sort of dreams of wannabe stars and wannabe hangers on. And if the, if the word entourage evokes the idea of, you know, a gang of friends and hangers on living the good life in the shadow of a superstar, then I guess we had seven or eight seasons of that. So entourage popular in its day, I wouldn't, highly recommend it today necessarily, but maybe maybe if you're a sort of 20-something, it still holds a fascination. All right. Now, well, maybe one day I'll get round to that. I think next on my agenda, uh, I'm just heading people off at the pass here before they say it, uh, Better Call Saul, which, of course, is the prequel to Breaking Bad. I think that's where I'm going next in my binge watching before the footy starts again and life as we know it ceases to exist. Uh all right, that's the entertainment part of this segment. Let's finish off with a great footy memory from 2004. Well, there were quite a, a lot of events, eventful things in 2004, but I couldn't go past this one, Finey. I was there this night. I was doing the boundary, and it was bloody epic. It was the round three Saturday night game between Essendon and West Coast, won by six points by the Bombers, 22-5, 137 to 2011. 131. Imagine a scoreline like that these days. It's not all that long ago. It's 2004. You know, it's not like ancient history. That's how uh, quickly the scoring dropped off. But this was an epic game, most remembered for an incredible individual performance from James Hurd, who kicked the match-winning goal and memorably ran to the fence and hugged a Bomber fan behind the fence, uh, a, a moment so memorable it was recreated in one of those Toyota ads. Uh, but uh, look, even that aside, a great game in its own right. Heard that day f- or evening finished off with 34 disposals, seven marks and three goals. He had 15 disposals in the last quarter and basically just controlled the game, w- decided to win the game himself and Julie did. Um, the winning snap, of course, took a handball from the uh, little-known Mark Bullen and snapped truly on his right foot to give the Bombers a victory by six points. Matthew Lloyd also kicked eight goals in this game, but uh, hardly anyone remembers that. Such was uh, Hurd's epic final quarter. And the uh, background to it, of course, was that after the previous game, which Essendon had lost to your boys, the Saints, James Hurd had on the Wednesday night gone on the footy show and proceeded to call umpire Scott McLaren a disgrace. And uh, didn't go down too well with the AFL, fair to say. Um, and he was, uh, there was some talk about him being deregistered as a result. 
in the end, he was fined, I think, $20,000. So he probably got off pretty lightly. It was certainly a massive sledge on umpire McLaren. Um, and uh, they kissed and made up before the start of the following game. But uh, this was the moment Heard decided, uh, well, I probably better do something to redeem myself. What better way to do it than to win a game for my side? And in the long catalogue of uh, epic James Heard performances, this one is very, very close to the top. Sensational performance from a sensational footballer. What have you got? Yeah, well... I guess a little bit sort of club centric, both of us in 2004, but I want to mark the tremendous effort of Fraser Gerrigan being the second last player to kick a hundred goals in an AFL season. We don't think we're going to see it again for a long time. Of course, Buddy Franklin, the last player to do so. His 103 goals in 2004 was a fantastic effort, famously kicking his hundredth, in the preliminary final against Port Adelaide, ground invasion, halting St Kilda's early momentum in that game. But that shouldn't detract from the 100 goals. And really, I think, I reckon Fraser Gehrig is an underrated superstar of the game. At West Coast, an athletic wingman, young, aerobically powerful, brilliant footballer, came to St Kilda. And by then, a different body shape. First year at St Kilda, was second in the best and fairest playing at fullback. Moved to full forward where he wins two Coleman medals, gains all Australian selection. But a powerhouse forward, still very fast on the lead. And an underrated, accurate kick for goal. A really an inter- interesting type. A bit of an introvert, Fraser Gehrig. So you don't hear a lot from him. Haven't heard a lot from him post-football really one of the game's great players and very versatile and a brilliant effort to kick 100 goals in 2004. So I'd forgotten he'd won two Coleman medals. I knew he won one. What, yep. So that was one year. What was the other year? Um, was it 2006? I'm trying to think. Uh, 2005. No, he went back to back. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, yeah, I think that's a pretty good point. You, you look at the achievements and you look at the powerful unit he was um, and he probably doesn't get that kudos in the pantheon of modern day greats that he should so good call and uh, certainly a remarkable achievement in that season all right that's it for vinyl and videos only one way to finish this program we all know what it is and it's a great big rant on footyology the rant of all right, uh, I'm not ranting about politics, don't panic. I'm not ranting about football. I'm ranting about cricket, finally. I think it's very timely that uh, I launch into the uh, flannel falls arena. So I'd like you to count me in, if you will. Okay, I'll do so with a three, two, one, over. I'm pissed off with India, finally. Well, not the whole population of 1.3 billion people, probably a billion of whom have spent the last day or so partying, but those 11 guys in white who pulled off one of the great sporting comebacks at the Gabba yesterday. There's no two ways about it. Indian cricket's 2-1 series win over Australia. This test series is one of the great sporting performances of our time. They were more stuffed than one of those Woolworths chickens after Adelaide, rolled for just 36 runs in the second innings. Their skipper and best batsman in the world, Virat Kohli, on his way home, 
and about to suffer a run of injuries worse than the Germans on the Russian front in 1941. By the time they got to Brisbane, they were just about ready to call on the bloke I used to open the bowling with at Middle Park in the late 90s. Who wasn't thinking, here we go again, another touring team about to meet its maker in Australia as our boys beat up on a hapless underdog? that they ended up series winners, chasing down an imposing last innings tally at a venue Australia hadn't lost at since 1988 is truly remarkable. But it's more than that, Finey. It's like India not only pinched a series we had in the bag, but that they steadily hijacked our national cricket persona as well. Inspired performance in the face of adversity, young guns thrown to the wolves, performing with aplomb and a cool head, daring to keep attacking when the odds suggested caution and self-preservation was a safer option. They're the sort of traits we like to think epitomise Australian cricket. But over the last few weeks, it's been the likes of Rishabh Pant, Cheteswar Pajara and Greenhorn's Shadul Takua and Washington Sundar, who have taken the bull by the horns and dropped ice cubes down the vest of fear. And sadly, it's been our blokes who have panicked, dithered and in the end been left all out of inspiration and ideas. Who do these young, daring Indians think they are? Remember the good old days when we could and did patronise Indian cricket? You know, when their touring teams were full of wristy little batsmen, spinners with funny actions and opening bowlers you would have been licking your lips about facing in fourth grade church cricket on a Saturday. Remember when it was just little Sonny Gavaskar holding the baton and we could all give him an affectionate, condescending pat on the head as his teams crumbled around him? Remember when Bishan Beatty was one of the best spinners in the world, but all we could crap on about was his turban? It's just as well Tony Gregg's no longer with us. They were the cricketing culture stereotypes in which he thrived. To see this version of India would have sent him around the twist. And what would he have made of the genuine affection Australia's cricketing public circa 2021 seems to hold for the visitors? I was having a good scroll through Twitter as India crept closer to victory yesterday afternoon. And I could have sworn I was doing so from Mumbai, such was the level of support my fellow Australians were showing for the opposition. That might say a bit about how much work Australian cricket still has to do to win back the approval of the public and pissed off so savagely with a bit of sandpaper in South Africa three years ago. But it says more about what traits we really appreciate. They're not only those I described before, but a notable absence of sledging, surly aggression and pseudo-tough guy antics which are pretty passe in 2021 and which look even sillier when you end up on the losing side. So, yeah, India, I'm pissed off. You stole our proud Gabba record, you stole our series, and you've stolen our identity to boot. It can't be too long now before the metamorphosis is complete and the rest of the world is patting little Tim Payne on the head, laughing at one of our guys wearing funny headgear and feasting on our pop gun opening attack. What the hell is going on? Yeah, well said. They're bloody good to watch, aren't they? Oh, they're great. I've got to say, just quickly, I'm pretty patriotic about my cricket to the extent when we lost the Ashes in 2005 and everyone said, that was the greatest series of all time. I couldn't cop it. I, I just spat the dummy something shocking after that series. But this series was different. I just, in the end, you had to take your hat off and applaud them. They just got everything right. They lifted inspirational stuff. Well done, India. Congratulations. All right, Fonny, going to count you in now. Three, two, one, rant. This has got nothing got to do with COVID. This is just modern phenomenon. I think that there are only two types of businesses that are currently 
not only surviving, but thriving in the Australian landscape. One of them are these nefarious sort of mysterious massage places, Thai massage places that appear to be popping up everywhere. Now, I can't comment on them because I can't and won't go to them. I'm not paying an extra $75 for a happy ending that I can provide for myself, save the cost of a little bit of lubricant. I don't use that service. The other thriving, surviving business is something that has really got on my goat. It's a type of eatery. I won't call it a restaurant. It's an eatery that my wife and my daughters favour and that they occasionally drag me to. And they have, look, you can identify them by their odd names. Their names are very pretentious. They either describe the ownership, two gaunt sisters and a brother, or they always have the word and in them, like kleptomaniac and worrywart, Hoffenheim and Smith, Brown and McSlivovitz, or they have completely esoteric names that have no place in the world of eateries, the poodle in shining armour or the persnickety fishmonger. They serve breakfast 24 hours a day. They're not open 24 hours a day. And they're not really breakfast. There's no bacon and eggs, sausages and beans. There's ricotta and compots of fig. If I want a fig compot, I'll go to the local fig tree and drive my car back and forwards for a couple of minutes. And I'm not paying $20 to have things drizzled with honey. They're annoying places but I can be annoying when I go there. The menu always features quinoa. So I make a point of ordering quinoa because I love being co corrected by a 19 year old girl who has a piercing that connects her lip to her nose, to her, her eyebrow. Just the sort of girl to correct my English. And now they've got these things called super bowls and bowls of superfood and acai or acai or acai. Whatever it is, you can't eat there. They have one sort of conciliatory hamburger, which really isn't a hamburger. It's a meat smothered in caramelised onions and a $23, not worth looking at. No, these places are not for men. They're not for people who like the old Chinese takeaway. And they're certainly not for people who know how to pronounce quinoa or quinoa or piercings or whatever. <laughs> no, that's very good that was one of your best i really enjoyed that one i do promise however that uh, hopefully this will be the only time you hear the word lubricant on this show you just had to <laughs> you just had to go there didn't you in fact have you ever been dragged to one of those places i never know what to order and and my wife is straight oh, away i thought you're talking about a time that's how it's power no no my wife's <laughs> straight away into it oh yes beautiful that akai super bowl i'll have one of those with extra <laughs> on it but i'd never know what to order at those places well you know what you you've i'm going to hold fire on this i'm going to leave this at, uh for next week at life hacks but i can give you a place like that uh close to me which has one of those sort of names but also and one and those sorts of dishes but also uh no i'll, I'll how do you feel in principle about when there's a variety of things on like a breakfast plate and there's one you can't eat physically and you ask for something in, in the place of that and they tell you no. Yeah, no alterations or changes because our, our highly strung chef has to put a mound of, I don't know, 
whatever he puts on it. Yeah, I, I can't I can't stand those places. Well, yeah, I'll, I will name and shame next week. So if anyone from that place is listening, and they probably I don't know if they will, but I uh, I don't often I hate making public scenes, but I had a bit of a dummy spit when that happened. All I wanted to do was replace bloody egg to which I'm allergic with mushrooms. Uh, no. Okay. Anyway, reminded me of a famous scene in uh, Jack Nicholson movie Five Easy Pieces, where he goes. How about, the... do, do you order a do you order a chai with almond milk, frothed low fat? I don't know what they drink either. It's all too confusing. For no, me. I think I just had a cappuccino. Well, I'll tell you one place. As we leave you, I'll tell you one place. It isn't confusing, and you certainly won't get any quinoa on these babies. Where am I talking about, Finey? You're talking about the antithesis of the persnickety fishmonger. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrews Hamburgers. Burgers. Yes. Yes. I understand that. Steak sandwiches. Me comprende. Chips. Understand. It's good old-fashioned. I know it. I love it fair. Andrews Hamburgers. And I tell you what, get a house built by West Point Properties. You'll get a house. You won't get a, a, a yurt or an igloo or a upside down I don't know up, an, an upside down junk you'll get a house because these are people that deliver on what they promise West Point Properties and Andrews Hamburgers yeah you're right you know I, I uh, tried to have a custom made igloo built recently and just wanted to put a wood panel door across the entrance no no additions or substitutions allowed and it was overpriced to buggery. They won't do that to you at West Point Properties. And uh, also, isn't antithesis a great word? I love using it. Uh, on that note, so do we, um, uh, I don't know what it is there. I've just lost my vocabulary the moment I found it. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back again around this time next week, hopefully a little bit earlier, but uh, circumstances intervene today. Never mind, we made up for it with a power pack show. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next week.